Are you an engineer who wants to use your technical skills and move into an entrepreneurial or managerial role? Well, Duke's Masters of Engineering Management, or MEM, may be just the ticket for you. And it provides two options, on campus and online. We're going to learn about both from the director of the program. So plug in your earbuds. Welcome to Admission Straight Talk, the podcast dedicated to graduate admissions and helping you approach the application process thoughtfully and successfully. Your host is Accepted's founder and world-renowned admissions guru, Linda Abraham. At Accepted, our mission is to get you to that unforgettable moment when you read your acceptance email and shout, yes, I'm in, confident you'll be attending the perfect program to help you launch the career of your dreams. Welcome to the 564th episode of Admission Straight Talk. Thanks for joining me. Before we dive into today's interview, I want to mention a free resource at Accepted that can benefit you if you are applying to graduate engineering programs, and that is applying to graduate engineering programs, what you need to know. It can guide you through a process you've never been through before. It's not the same as applying to college. Download your complimentary copy at accepted.com slash 564download. Again, that's accepted.com slash 564download. Our guest today is Luis Morales, Executive Director of the Master of Engineering Management Program at Duke University. Professor Morales earned his bachelor's in electrical engineering from the University of Puerto Rico and his master's of engineering from Cornell University. He then worked as an engineer and manager at AT&T and at Cisco before joining Duke as an executive in residence and adjunct associate professor at Duke's Pratt School of Engineering, while also founding his own consulting company. He became the executive director of the MEM program, the MEM program, in 2021, and also teaches three courses in that program. Professor Morales, welcome to Admissions Straight Talk. Thank you, Linda. It's a pleasure to be here. Can we start by you giving an overview of the Master of Engineering Management program at Duke? Who is it for? What need is it intended to fill? Absolutely. So, so the Duke MEM program has been around for more than 25 years. In fact, last year we were celebrating our 25th uh, year anniversary. And as I look back at the charter of the program back then in 1997, um, the purpose was to prepare engineers with business knowledge. So the, the assessment, Linda, at the time was that we needed, we were preparing engineers for industry, for global economy that did not have the necessary business knowledge. So they were not able to either get an impact, have an impact on the business side of, of, of companies right away. So that's exactly the the need that we're trying to satisfy. And if you think back to if that was the need then, and you look at where we are now, as technology has become so pervasive across so much of how we as a society generate value, engineering management to me is the perfect solution because it combines, again, it builds on a base of technical knowledge, but then it, it builds uh, business knowledge on top of that. So the basic structure of the program is, is, is eight courses, four of which are core, uh, focus on um, ma you know, management, people management, intellectual property management, uh, marketing and finance. Then the other, the other four are technical electives designed to basically sharpen your 
STEM, so whether it's product management, uh, project management, data science, software management, et cetera. Great. Now, there are two versions of the MEM program, right? Do you pronounce it MEM or MEM? What what is normal? So I so it official uh, the official name name of the program Master of Engineering Management. Uh, the P is always there. I mean, and the people who have been around the program for the longest time always include the P. <laughs> okay. And so I started here seven years ago, Linda. I let the P go, <laughs> uh, so I always call it MEM. Okay, sounds good. Um, Getting back to the questions. So there are two versions. There's the online and the in-residence. Um, yeah. Can you go over how they're structured? Absolutely. So the, the the campus program, as I mentioned before, has been around for more than 25 years. Our online offering started, it's going to be 15 years in wow. September. Yeah, it, the time flies. Um, there's, very, there's a lot of similarities between the two in, in terms of uh, course curriculum is the same core courses for electives, you know, semi-instructors that teach the, with some small exceptions, but semi-instructors teach the core courses, teach the online sections. But then for the online course, Linda, what we do is that we replace the seminars and workshops that are included in the campus offering. And we replace those with three weeks of residency where online students get to come to campus and then work on, you know, do their workshops, meet the faculty, and more importantly, meet each other, you know, mm -hmm. meet fellow cohorts. So we do that before they begin their first semester. We do that halfway, you know, at the end of the first year of academic studies, and then right before graduation. So those, those are the the residency experiences. So there are three residency experiences? That's right. And they're each, how long again? It's one week. One week, very one nice. Week. And believe it or not, the, the, the things that are, is, by the way, I feel, I know we're not supposed to be sharing secrets here, but hey, it's um, one of the things that I consider to be the uh, secret or a secret of success for our online program is precisely those residencies. And, and our... You know, we we have a we're lucky to have a professor that runs those uh, residencies, Latondra Murray, who is outstanding, and I think that helps keep the energy up during the residencies and after. Sounds good. Thank you. May I ask how many students are in in each program? And during the residencies, I assume they mix, right? For the in residence and the online students get together. Sure. So the residencies, um, the way we design it is for the third residency, the one right before graduation, that's the only one where there is actually an overlap between when the campus students are here and the online students are here. For the okay. other residencies, they happen during the summer, one in July, other one in early August. So by design, there's very little sections, Linda. So there's very little uh, structural overlap between the two and initially actually we we were mixing it up but we learned that the their profiles are different so so our online students obviously are working professionals they tend to join us i don't know five six eight years after graduation uh from undergrad whereas our 
uh, campus students tend to join us on average three years after graduation. So there's a significant difference in maturity. So we keep them, the two communities separate. Got it. Do you have people in the in-residence program that are coming straight from college or do they usually work for a little bit? Yeah, like, like the, again, if we look at the distribution, I think there's three years, but we do have students are allowed to join a campus program. I mean, they meet our admission requirements and uh, we just feel, Linda, if we were to change the, the program so that it's only is dominated by fresh graduates, I think that yeah. would be, we would be losing value if we yeah. were to do that. So, so most of them have already worked a little bit. Yeah, most of them, in fact, is that, you know, this is a mission season. So we're, we just had our first um, deadline on Monday or again, Monday of this week. And if you look at the applications at random, I mean, and you just say, okay, what is the story? Why Duke, why now? And it's very consistent, you know, engineers, they graduated with mechanical engineering degree or whatever, what have you. They went on and started working in a, in a company and um, and then all of a sudden they they saw someone in their space that they admire and they want to emulate and they realize that that person has skills that they don't have and in most cases tend to be you know leadership skills or you know financial or marketing skills so that's what brings them back to school that's why they're here got it it's interesting that is very interesting. What do you see as the most significant differences between the MEM and an MBA? Because there are definite similarities. Oh, absolutely. And an MEM and getting an MS in engineering. Yeah, so the way we look at it, let, let's start with the MS and uh, okay. MEM because we we kind of have, we live under the same roof, so to speak, right. here, right. the School of Engineering. We tend to uh, encourage MS students tend to be individuals that are interested in pursuing research. Mm -hmm. That either they they may not have, you know, line of sight to get to a PhD, but they're very much interested in, in research type uh, positions and opportunities in industry. Whereas our MEM students are really interested in going back to industry and working in roles like I mentioned before, product management, pro project management, more of a, you know, techno management uh, roles, even on the in the on the engineering side of the companies, uh, but that's kind of the main difference between the two. So if you, if we see somebody in in their application, for example, tells me he or she is very much interested in research and that's what they're passionate about, we will encourage them to apply for an MS for a master's. As far as the MBA uh, is. There's similarities and there's some differences. I think as the MBA program has started to uh, create this um, one offerings, like um, you know, we have some here at Fuqua where we have MMS and other programs. Some of the differences have become blur. If you look at their curriculum, you know, you will see obviously marketing, finance. Yeah. Uh, in some cases, you know, the people management also will be there. Then we start diverging there because we start talking about intellectual property and our approach to even finance and marketing is very much from a tech technology point of view. So 
So, um, and then we have the electives and our electives are, are different from the electives that you will get in a, in a MBA program or a quant program. I think the main, but at the end of the day, um, Linda, I mean, we can, we can make a case that yes, a student, an MEM student can make a choice of, of electives that will look very much like a MMS right. to some extent. But then the main difference remains that your your co your fellow students will all be engineers or right. scientists. And whereas and the MBA will be a kind of a different profile. It'll be a mix of different uh backgrounds. So, so I think that is the main difference. And and that resonates to me, Linda, given my background as an engineer, when if you if you if you and I get on that time machine and and we go back to when I graduated from electrical engineering at Cornell. And you ask me, hey, Luis, what do you want to do uh, after, you know, five, the next five years? I would have told you, oh, Linda, I just want to be an individual contributor. I enjoy being an engineer. I mean, I still do. Uh, that's what brings joy to my life. But then at the time, I didn't know that I have a passion for people that I later discovered. And, you know, it took me 10 years. So maybe I'm a... Uh, uh, slow a, a slow uh, mover but uh, it took me 10 years to discover the passion for people so I, sh I shifted to technical manager roles right i think another difference also is length of time i mean the traditional mba degree is a two-year degree the mem degree even in residence is a, is a one-year degree right. um but the question i have i had a situation uh with our older the oldest daughter she at the time was 22 and our youngest daughter was 16 and our oldest daughter wanted to go for a master's in not-for-profit management. Mm -hmm. And we felt, my husband and I felt that she should go for an MBA and just focus on not-for-profit management because an MBA is a much more flexible degree. Right. And um, she didn't want to hear it. She didn't want to do the MBA. And one day our, we, were, we had over um, one of our younger daughter's friends and she asked our older daughter, what do you, you know, what are your plans? So I want to go for a degree in not-for-profit management. And she got accepted to some really top programs in that field. And our daughter's 16-year-old friend said to her, why, why aren't you going for an MBA? It's a much more flexible degree. <laughs> at which point she looked at us like, did you pay her to say that? I mean, <laughs> you know, but my question to you is if, if I'm sure that some people listening to this are thinking, well, if I'm going to get the leadership skills and I'm going to get the business skills and I'm going to get, and it's going to complement my undergraduate training, wouldn't I be better off getting an MBA and having the flexibility and the, and, you know, that kind of thing. How would you respond to that concern? How would you, how would you respond if the 16 year old asked you a uh, similar question? No, that's a fair, it's a fair question. I think the way I look at it is we do offer flexibility, but it's, I think it comes from a, uh, from our vantage point. So I'll, let me explain. We are catering to engineers and you know scientists or STEM uh, scientists or an engineer. Our audience is different. I mean, if mm. if uh, if you are a scientist or an engineer like me, right? Who stupid me back then, right? But if you use the word sales and you say, "Hey, Louise, do you want to learn more about sales?" I would have said, "No, no, no, no." I want to be an engineer. Give me tech, right? Tech is what I want. Give me math problems. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, give, give me something to break or build or design. That's what I want to do. So that is our that is our constituency, Linda. Okay. That's your and market. For them, what what MEM does, it provides you that flexibility, right? It, it provides you a, a way of. I used to work at Cisco. One of my uh, my senior executive, one of my favorite executives there, he used to talk about squids and spaceships. So it's kind of a hard thing to follow, but the, the squids were these people who were focused on one thing and they knew it in in depth. Yeah. And yeah. then the spaceships were the individuals that kind of can cover a lot of ground. And as a as an executive, he wanted everybody to kind of be a, a spaceship because you could it could be deployed in multiple from the point of view of the company. But I think we kind of make build prepared squids with spaceships heads. Okay. Uh, so I so, love the so metaphor. <laughs> yeah. So we're trying to we're trying to you know build on the squidness that we all engineers bring to the table and sort of broaden your perspective so that you can operate as a as a spaceship using the my friend's analogy. That's a great one. I love the the metaphor, and um, and like you said, you have a very specific market that you're appealing to. Right. I also remember and it was many years ago, but when I did my MBA, I have a, a social science and humanities background, and I remember mm -hmm. some of the engineers in our program, they were they were bored with the math that we were doing that I was frankly finding quite challenging because I didn't have the quantitative background. Yeah. Anyway, it's another another aspect of the MBA versus MEM question, I think. Now, in preparing for the call, I noticed that the MEM focuses very much on professionalism and its five principles. Can you yeah. touch on what they are and their importance in the program? And, you know, a lot of times programs will have some very nice sounding motto or mission or, or uh, key principles, whatever you want to call them. And they're not, they're, they sound great, but they're not really ingrained in the program. Right. So when you're talking about them, how are, how are these principles guiding yeah. you? How are they realized in the program, actualized? Yeah. So so it's, thank you for asking me the question, by the way, because I this is something I feel really, really strong about. This is even before I became the director as a faculty. I was one of the, the main forces behind the development of this. And you didn't pay me to, to ask the question. No, no I didn't. <laughs> so the, my motivation at the time, you know, when I started the dialogue at the faculty mm -hmm. meetings was to, um, I said, you know, we come from industry and in, in industry, we have a very clear purpose. You know, there's clarity of purpose from leadership. This is why we're here. This is our vision. This is our, our mission. This is our strategy on how we accomplish our vision. So I felt like our program despite the, the, the fact that we've been around for so long, we didn't have that articulation. You know, we clearly have a mission, as I mentioned before, of, you know, preparing engineers with business knowledge, but we couldn't articulate kind of the, what do we stand for? So, so what happened was, and it was kind of organic, Linda, at the faculty meetings, when, when I sort of pitched this, okay, we should come up with a, and mission and vision, the team said, you know what? I think it's important for us to uh, communicate to our prospective students and even to our students and prospective students, what are the areas of knowledge where we're gonna build core competence? So the initial intent was to articulate 
kind of like a brand promise, Linda. This is, if you come into this program, these are the areas of competency that you're going to work on. And this is communication, you know, we want to make sure that you can communicate effectively and you can communicate your ideas. I always tell my students, if you're unable to communicate your ideas, those are your, it could be the most creative person in the world. Those ideas are trapped in your brain. Uh, so set them free by working your communication skills. Um, and we, in, in our classes and, you know, through curricular, co-curricular activities, we give students opportunity to work on their communication. And we have a part of our uh, Pratt services, you know, uh, master services team helps students with communication, particularly from if English is, is not your first language, we help them improve their skills. The second one is teamwork. I think it goes without saying at this point in life that if you think that you're just going to work by yourself in a lab or you, that's not going to happen, right? And no. companies were not put up with it, you know. Uh, so you you live in a, we live in a world where you need to work in teams. So we talk about, particularly in our management class, Linda, we, we talk about how do you build a high-performing team? What are some of the characteristics of this? What are the five dysfunctions of a team? How do you have a difficult conversation? And so on and so forth. So that's that's kind of the, the teamwork piece. The other one is critical thinking. And it could be based on the demographics of our program. We have a lot of international students from India and from China. Sometimes as faculty, we see students that come with this expectation that there's a recipe, Linda. Tell me what the recipe is and I'll follow it and I will have success in my life. We said, no, that's not going to work. I mean, we need to equip you with the ability to make critical decisions when presented with multiple views of data. And in many cases, and we're living this through media today, it's sometimes conflicting pieces of information. How do you go through that situation and make make Ambiguity. Yeah. How do you deal how with do ambiguity? You, how do you deal with ambiguity? So that's critical thinking. Then the next one is ethics. And um, ethics is one that, to be honest, the students struggle with. So what does that mean? I, I'm an honest person. I am kind. I, I do the right thing. Um, so we have been putting a lot of focus on this around, particularly our, around our data and data science areas. You know, I, I was doing my own homework with, with your podcast and, and I heard some of the administrators talk about ChatGPT and how we're using ChatGPT we'll and <laughs> AI in general, right? And yeah. to me, um, AI, you know, if, if, if used correctly, which means, you know, we are all upfront, the students and, and faculty, we say we're not afraid of it. We consider it a source of information. If we're upfront with it, um, it's fine. Uh, but for example, in my class, I teach a class on improving customer experience. How do we build uh, a data assistant to collect data that can help improve the customer experience? I talk to my students about making sure they consider data privacy concerns as you're building the system. Because we, we say, okay, we're building a system that improves the customer experience, but at what cost? And, and you need to sort of have that in the back of your mind that your decisions could impact 
you know the privacy of others and the the you know expose private information from others and then last but not least humanness i think that's my favorite principle linda and i think the way i would describe it to you is we um we actually went back to the the greek word yeah. um of uh odomonia i'm sure i'm pronouncing it incorrectly but that the feeling of flourishing we're trying to encourage our students to sort of make use of all the gifts that that God had given them, right? And, you know, put the effort to do introspection, understand what those gifts are, then make use of them for the betterment of society, but also help others do the same. So those are the the five principles and and we reinforce them in class, in in my communications as as leader and in every uh, activity we have. In fact, we have awards in the program where we give out awards to students that embody these principles the most. And we is very much an element of our admissions process. So you you you're looking for people who identify with those values basically. Yes. And not not mouthing them, but demonstrate them, identify with them. Yes. And 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 that's that's a very good point because I could I could go to Bart or Chat GPT and ask them, tell me something about professionalism and the five principles, and it would spew something out that sounds nice. But what we do in our application review, Linda, is we look for the holistic connecting the dots. So is when in your essays, in your in your resume, in your video. Are you connecting those dots or is it just a one-time mention that you made of, of that? It has right. to be genuine and, and supported by facts. Right, right. Yeah, you know, you don't you don't want your website spit back to you. That's not, not very helpful. Exactly. <laughs> um, let's let's go a little bit more into the application process. Now you, you touched on experience or professional experience already. Is the GRE yeah. required? No, so GRE, we decided we, we're reevaluating since COVID. We have been reevaluating that every year, but I made the decision to make it optional this year again. And part of it is because, I mean, we're not, we're satisfied with the outcome or the quality of the applicants that we're getting. Yeah. We get a, a wider range of applicants. And we still saying, if you if you want to submit the GRE, you can do it. And I think my ask is, I mean, students say, so, but why? Why would I do it if, if, it's, if it's optional? I say, well, if your GPA is not as good as you think it should be, or it could be, and, and you feel the GRE tells the story or helps you tell the story, then I would do it in that case. Okay, great. Now, you've actually anticipated my next question with that response. Now, what else are you looking for in the admissions process? Obviously, good grades, I assume... I- you know, engineering or STEM background. We've discussed that. We've touched on that. Sometimes the GRE, but are you looking for leadership experience? Are you looking for extracurricular activities to yeah. show that somebody's not just focused on engineering or just focused on STEM? What about those things? Do they play a role? Absolutely. And the way I would articulate, so we have four criteria, Linda, that we use and we consider them equally, actually the equal weight. So that the rubric, Again, has the four elements are number one academic, I mean, uh, school quality. And, and what we're looking for is that you 
graduated from a challenging or reputable academic institution that sets the bar high, I mean, gets you ready to, to be a, a member of the Duke community. The mm -hmm. second criteria is academic performance. So you went to that school, how did you do? Our GPA, uh, average GPA ranges between 3.4 and, and 3.6. I think that's kind of where most of our students, so most of the, most, mostly A's, a few B's, in some cases, their C's uh, scatter uh, one or two C's uh, here and there. Uh, but when we start seeing uh, D's and F's, and then we, we get discouraged. Um, the other two criteria are, in my opinion, as important or maybe more important. The third criteria, we call it uh, engagement. And what we're looking for there, Linda, is demonstration, back to the point we were making before, demonstration of projection to society. So we are very clear here at Duke and you know and our mission that we're trying to prepare engineers that would impact the world and impact society for the better. So we want those engineers, those scientists that are that care about the community, that care about the world. So one of the criteria we look for is how engaged are you with the community? I mean it's amazing how many applications I read of students that have a 4.0 GPA. And would you read it, Linda? It's all about them and things that they've done for themselves and very little about how they're using, again, the gifts that they have to help other people and leader in sports or, or church or community or you know helping remove trash or whatever it is. I mean, I just want to see evidence that you really care about others than other people, more than you, just you. So that's engagement. And then the last one is fit. And, and that ties back to professionalism and the five principles. The way I look at it, Linda, is that we're looking for engineers that believe in principle-based leadership. That when you say things like that, they are like, yeah, that makes sense. Or what the heck is that, right? They roll or, their eyes. They roll their eyes. So what, what I'm looking for there or what we're looking for there is people that resonate to that. And they, they have demonstrated interest and there's evidence that they believe in it, that they act on it, whether it's teamwork or, you know, critical thinking, humanness. I mean, I some of the best applications I've seen is uh, applicants talking about humanness and how they're trying to help uh, their community and 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 through that live up their five principles. Wow, sounds that's great. Thank you. That was really very informative. What sure. if an applicant is interested in attending the the MEM? Maybe they didn't graduate in engineering but maybe they took a lot of, I don't know, biology classes or, or biological anthropology or something like that. It's not hard STEM, but it's getting close. Yeah. Um, can he or she take specific classes to get the technical foundation that you expect? And what would those classes be? Yeah, so we, for situations like that, we what we recommend is that students take um, third level calculus one, you know, calculus one, two, three, and then, uh, probability and statistics. And I think the the third level calculus is not that we're going to be doing triple integrals in, in our program here, but it's really more about you 
as a student feeling confident that you can be successful and you can hang around with your peers and don't feel intimidated that you understand the concepts at that level number one and then probability and statistics is more about what we were talking about dealing with ambiguity you know as engineers um we are not used to you know, you're used to numbers being very concrete. yeah we're used to very precise things probability and statistics help us appreciate the fact that the world is not perfect and there's always randomness uh, associated with it. I, I, I was teaching a class uh, in data science and um, I would always integrate probability and statistics into it because you know every every outcome, every exercise that you do it, you could characterize it as a random process to some extent. Hmm. Interesting. My husband is an actuary. Uh, retired actuary at this point so he, he's very much a numbers guy and i mean he looks at everything everything in terms of what's the likelihood of that kind you know percentages and it's just kind of, he doesn't he's just trained that way it's just how he's programmed yeah. you know right now let's let's turn to the essays yeah. can we just discuss the the short essays and the first question is what is short yeah, so I actually had to call a friend on that one to make sure I gave you the right, okay. the right answer. I mean, uh, so I think the word the word limit is 1,500, 1500 words. Let me make characters? sure. Characters? Maybe it's characters? I mean, characters. characters. Yeah, yeah. 100 yeah. characters, but includes spaces and uh, punctuation. So I want to make sure that that was clear. Right. 1,500 characters, including space and punctuation. But the, I think the, the reason why we make it so short is that we we want students to put the time to think about what they want to say number one um and number two when they say it they say it in a way that is somewhat concise and not rambling but i would give you another secret linda sure i, I love I think, secrets yeah so i'm ready <laughs> <laughs> i think if you're an applicant out there and you're interested in, in being part of our program don't shortchange yourself. I mean, and try to use as much space as possible to tell your story. There's nothing worse than us seeing people that, you know, we have video uh, essays a part of our application. You see students that just, just spend less than a minute saying what they need to say when they have whatever, three minutes to say what they need to say. So more is more. <laughs> Not less as long as you stick to the limits, as long as you stick to the limits. As long as you stick to the limits, more is more, right? I mean, right. because we're trying to get to know you. And, and if you're shortchanging us with your word, then it's hard for us to make an assessment. Makes sense. Makes sense. Now, the questions are, we can learn about your past experience from your resume, but we're interested in your plans. Why are you interested in pursuing the Master's of Engineering Management degree from Duke University? That's question A. Question B is about the professionalism and the five principles. Please choose one principle and explain how you plan to contribute in that way at Duke, MEM, and beyond. And question C is, does any elective track within the Duke MEM program fit your needs? If so, which one and why? If not, and understanding you're free to change your mind later, list three to four electives within or outside MEM and how they will help you meet your career goals. Can you give us some tips in terms of answering these three questions? Yeah, so, so for the first one, what yeah. we're trying to do is we're trying to understand your motivation. What is your motivation to be part of this program? And as I was telling you, this is where I hear the very similar story of I graduated, I wanted to be an engineer's engineer, solve, you know, 
fix airplanes or whatever cars or or build buildings or whatever you want. But then I realized I was missing something and therefore I decided to come to do. So that's kind of where you will see that. So the first one gives us your motivation. The second one uh, speaks to, remember what we talk about fit and engagement to some extent. And then the third one, we're really trying to get to your ability to do your homework, right? Mm. And yeah. it's amazing how many students don't even bother to look at the, or I should say applicants, don't bother to do their homework. And then they, I mean, that's really a bad mark on on you um, and bad reflection when we feel that you you didn't do your homework. I mean, I'm, I'm coming here to talk to you and you did my your homework on me and I did my homework on you, Linda. So. Right, right, you're right. We both did our homework. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned a video interview. Yeah. And you have, have, have a, a, a in-person interview that comes later, but you also have a video interview. Can you touch yeah. on that? Why? Yeah, so, I mean, we've lived through the COVID pandemic where many people had to work uh, remote and operate remotely. So we all know that being able to see each other's facial expressions and full uh, spectrum of communication is important. So what we we look at the video as a way of delivering kind of the, the complete story. So think of it as your written essays, your resume, your transcripts, uh, your letters of recommendation are sort of building blocks. And then the, the video is the opportunity to integrate all of that into one cohesive story. Um, so that's what we do. You know, it's, it's basically a way of telling the story. Um, I enjoy the, I enjoy listening to the videos uh, because they, especially those that are successful in connecting the dots. It's kind of a, a quick way to meet somebody almost too. I mean, look, look what we're yeah. doing here, right? Right. Um, yeah. What can applicants invited to interview expect during their in-person interview? I'm talking now. Yeah. So, so what happens then? So, so we have built a team. So one of the, my specialties in, in industry, Linda was operations. So I'm a, I'm a quality management guy. So I'm in the engineering space. So I'm, I, I would typically be part of the operations team. So I'm very good at productivity and, and structure and organization. So one of the things I did when I took over as the director of this program is I developed that rubric very clearly, articulated the four uh, criteria that I just mentioned. Then I went on and hired readers that can, you know, using the rubric, evaluate applications uh, as they come in. And, you know, we just went to our first milestone, Linda. I think we got 1,040 applications. Wow. Uh, and how many students in the program again? Uh, 180. 180. Wow. Again. Wow. So, okay. so, so out of that, so that number of applications, we have a number of readers, we call them. So the readers will provide a score or an, an assessment on the application on the basis of, you know, their rubric. And then those applications that are deemed to be strong enough that, you know, we feel that this person has a potential to be part of a Duke MEM, then those get invited to an interview. 
Now, one of the things that we're doing this year, Linda, that we have never done before is in the past, the interview was conducted by faculty staff here in our program. What we're doing now this year is we have asked alumni to get involved in the interview process. So the, the assignment is somewhat, you can think of it as random. It's not really, but you can think of it that way. And what happens during that interview is basically we just want to chat, right? The, the alum have a chat with the applicant. And what we're asking applicants and the best advice I could give applicants is to just be yourself. We're trying to get to know you, get to know you. Um, I mean, the heavy lifting or the all the stuff, right? The, what yeah. you have accomplished and all of that is in the application. We're trying to get to know you as a person. So then we asked the alum to provide uh, feedback on on the on the uh, applicant. That feedback comes to me, and then I'm as part of the committee review. I decide on the offer admission or not. Right now, during the interview, the in-person interview with the alum or the admission staff person, would they ask more questions? Let's say about uh, how the applicant has handled particular situations or would handle particular situations? Are they gonna be asking about decision points in the resume? Is the interview blind or have they reviewed the application? I assume it's blind, oh, especially with alumni. It's blind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it is blind. I mean, in the past, in the past, before this right. involvement, it used to be more informed. So right. we would have exactly what you described, right? I would look at the application and say, hey, I had doubts about this, or I, I'm curious about that. But with this, uh, with the alums, we don't share the the applicant's information. So, so it's just okay. I get to you, Linda and I. You, we get to meet each other today, and then at the end, I say, okay, I think Linda is wonderful, or whatever. Right? Thanks. That's that's really the process. So okay. there's no set agenda. Oh, we okay. Just say, have a chat, right? Get to know uh, each other, answer right. questions. So, so I, I would encourage the applicants to use that time to ask questions, right? That's another way of sure. getting people to know you by the questions that you ask. Sure. And that way you also, yeah, for sure. What is a common mistake that you see applicants make in their applications? I mean, you've been doing this now for several years. Yeah, I think the, the biggest mistake I see is that they don't maybe don't follow instructions and they leave it for the last minute. And, and then they, the work product, if you will, uh, is subpar. I mean, we just talked about the videos, you know, just delivering a, a one minute video uh, when, when you're expected or allowed to do a three minute video is a mistake. I mean, yeah. remember we, the goal here is we're trying to get to know you. So make use of the, of the time and the resources that you've given, and then pay attention to the details. Sometimes people answer the wrong questions and give <laughs> questions, and and it's so sad because sometimes we see people that seem to have the right potential, but then they get squandered in the application. You also also think of engineers as usually being very detail oriented, so mm -hmm. it's almost more glaring than they aren't. Yes, I mean and. It, and in most cases, I think it's because they're rushing. They're, they mm -hmm. left it for the last minute and then, yeah, and we can't help with that. No, no, of course not.
What question would you like to answer that I haven't asked? What piece of information would you like to convey to listeners that we haven't discussed? Yeah, so thank you on that one, Linda. I mean, I think the way, the question I, I wish you would ask or you know, the, what I would like to share with you is that even though we have been around for 25 plus years, we're very much uh, looking for ways to reinvent ourselves and build on what we do well and sort of improve what we don't. And I'll give you a case in point. So we developed during the first six months of my tenure here as director, we developed something we call our Vision 2027. Okay. And part of our Vision 2027 was precisely to do precisely that. Understand what is it that we've done that is working, that our students say, and our, our alums are saying, yes, this is great. great faculty, experiential feedback, case-based learning, uh, Duke, right? Um, what is it that is not working? So what they told us wasn't working is that as the program had gotten bigger, we lost intimacy. So, you know, the, the students didn't get to know, you know, meet their uh, cohort members. So what we did, if we took a page out of the MBA playbook, and we created something called the cohort model. So basically, Linda, we took that 180 target of students inbound and we broke it into four cohorts, each of the 45-ish students. And those students, we tried to curate so that there was a, a very diverse, you know, gender, country of origin, experience, yeah. what have you. And those students take each cohort takes the same courses at the same time, the core courses anyway, the same time, and they get to know each other, build bonds between them very strongly. So that's one thing that we rolled out this year, uh, this fall, last fall. And then associated with that is something called the community building time, where we took three hours of our academic calendar or our academic schedule every week Tuesdays at noon, Thursdays at noon, and Fridays at noon. And we say, we'll have no classes during those three hours. And they're dedicated to promoting faculty-student relationship, student-student relationship, and student-alum relationships. So we have programming that helps promote that. You know, For example, today, Thursday, we, we have one of those events. So today's event, there was faculty student lunches that I pay for, the program pays for, uh, where faculty can take students out for lunch. Oh, nice. All them, yeah. And staff as well, so. That's great. So you, you know, again, you're innovating, you're adapting, you're learning from other programs. That's that's great. And thank you very much for sharing that with me. That's, that's uh, I think, important for our listeners to know. So Professor Morales, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. I've enjoyed learning about Duke's MEM. Listener, you'll find links in the show notes at accept.com slash 564 to the Duke MEM site, as well as to related podcasts and resources. And don't forget to download your free copy of Applying to Graduate Engineering Programs, What You Need to Know, at accept.com slash 564 download. 
Listener, thank you too for tuning in to this, our 564th episode. Don't miss any future shows or valuable information. Subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever podcatcher you prefer. You can find subscribe links at accepted.com slash 564. Again, it's accepted.com slash 564. This is Admissions Straight Talk produced by Accepted, and I am your host, Linda Abraham. I'll talk to you again next week. 